thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you for coming, attending our first panel of Forum 2019. Um, it's titled Opening Spaces, uh, inspired by uh, Yvonne Vera, one of the books Yvonne Vera edited, uh, which was a collection of short stories by different African women writers. Um, so, yeah, we originally had three panelists. Uh, one had to, um, was unfortunately able to attend because of a minor, uh, well, yeah. So Sandrine Collard, uh, artistic director of the sixth edition of the uh, Lumbumbashi Biennale, was supposed to be part of the panel, but unfortunately she was not able to attend. Um, so we'll still continue the conversation. Uh, I will introduce the moderator uh, of the panel. Uh, Adizi Wilford is the curatorial assistant at The Shed. She was an inaugural joint curatorial fellow at the Studio Museum in Harlem and the Museum of Modern Art. In 2017, she curated except addressing artists who, use, who used text to challenge dominant historical narratives at the Studio Museum and Black Intimacy, a film series at MoMA, exploring black love and intimate relationships through the lens of politics. Other curatorial projects include Harlem Postcards and Color Shadows, the 2016 expanded, expanding the walk exhibitions at Studio Museum. Prior to this, Adiza was the public programs and community engagement assistant at the Studio Museum. She graduated from Northwestern University with a BA in Art History and African American Studies. So I hand it over to Adiza and Katinka and Stefan. Thank you. So good afternoon, everyone, and thank you uh, to Nashe and Nancy for inviting us. Thank you, 154, for also inviting us to do this conversation. I'm going to introduce Katinka and Stephanie. So I'll start with Katinka and her bio. Uh, Katinka Tabukaru earned her BA from the University of California, Berkeley, and her JD LLM from Duke University. She worked for the UN International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and the Office of the Chief Defense Counsel for the Military Commissions at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. In 2010, Tabakaro started Women's Voices Now, a nonprofit aimed at giving voice to women living in Muslim-majority countries throughout the medium of film. She curated a collection of 99 short films from 40 countries, reaching viewers in 176 countries. Currently, Tabakaro represents 12 artists from five continents while directing galleries in Manhattan and Harare Zimbabwe. She is a co-founder of the CTG Collective, which organizes an itinerant international residency program. That's Katinka, very impressive bios. And Stephanie Baptiste. Stephanie Baptiste is an independent cultural producer, curator, and editor. She lives in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, where she founded the contemporary art gallery and project space Medium Tings. She is the art and editorial director of ASICO on the future of artistic and curatorial pedagogies in Africa, a publication produced by the Center for Contemporary Art, Lagos. Previously, Stephanie has served as program director for Enfoco, a Bronx-based nonprofit photography organization dedicated to the cultural diversity and dedicated to cultural diversity, and as head of education and public programs for Tiwani Contemporary and Art Gallery in London. She has also served as contributing editor and correspondent for online platforms, including Another Africa and Contemporary End. 
She's on the Board of Advisors for Contemporary Art Gallery Boys' Quarters Project Space in Port Harcourt, Nigeria. And Stephanie holds an MA in Arts Administration and Cultural Policy from Goldsmiths in University of London. So thank you both for being here today. Just for a flow of how this will go, we're going to start with uh, Stephanie giving an overview of her projects, and then Katinka will go, and then we'll have a conversation amongst ourselves before opening to you. Hi, everyone. Um, so I founded Medium Things, um, which is a gallery that I launched in um, my living room in June 2017 on the top floor of a brownstone in Crown Heights. And initially, the reason why I wanted to develop the space as I was really hoping to kind of bring together two groups of people. I wanted to work with early career artists of color who um, didn't have a lot of experience in the, in the art world. And I also wanted to bring together, I would say, the emerging collector or art novice who was interested in like collecting. So that was the initial idea I had. I wasn't sure what the formula was, how it was actually really going to evolve outside of the fact that I wanted the parameters of the gallery to kind of operate in a similar way. Um, so four to six weeks were the length of exhibitions. And I also invited um, artists to, I'm going to start to go through this just so you can get a better idea of actually what I'm talking about. So this um, was the, um, this is the living room. So I work with artists across a multitude of mediums. And the plan was really just for it to be kind of a, art incubator exper experiential type of platform where they could work within the space. So um, they had about 500 square feet to play with. And so a lot of the artists were thinking about their work becoming a little bit more site specific when you're thinking about presenting exhibitions in a living room. This, is the, this was the project space, so this was an ancillary room that was off of the main living room. And in this room, it was really important for me to be able to provide additional context. So we had um, our, I invited artists to basically bring in any materials that was reflective or influencing their practice. And this was, um, so in this, in this um, image, we have um, Ariel Bob Willis, she's a photographer. And what you're looking at are the books that she was referencing. So people like Benny Andrews, which is a painter, um, and Jacob Lawrence influenced her practice. So that we're um, able to add additional context. So essentially this room became almost a space that was in lieu of an artist's studio. So that was really important for me to be able to have this room kind of speak for the artists when they weren't present during exhibitions. And this also housed our permanent library, so our, my own personal collection, but it also had books and materials that people could come in and purchase. But it also, I also used this as a platform to basically have conversations with independent publishers. So we, I invited, um, our first individual I invited was Ulysses Bookstore to be our bookstore in residence. And I thought, and so they took over several shelves of, of the library in order to be able to have conversations in direct um, correlation with the exhibitions that were on view. And this is um, basically just showing you that primarily this is, since this was a living room project, if you will, it was really hard for me to be able to kind of advertise. So I use social media platforms really heavily to be able to engage with the public. And so I would post flyers online and then basically ask people to RSVP to be able to um, 
And I, as mentioned, I've worked with a multitude of artists across all mediums. So it was like painters, photographers, collage artists. And so what I want to show you is just um, about like a five minute clip of a previous um, exhibition I had with um, video and performance artist Ayana Evans. Katsu and I love the new bikini. The new bikini. And, and the fearlessness, because she's like, hello, it's, it's me, Ayana Evans, <laughs> on the sidewalk with the damn bucket in my, my foot's in the bucket with some ice. Let me throw some ice at you. And I'm glad she finally has a solo show, even though it seems like she's already had one. The staircase number okay. was amazing. <laughs> I love her on the street. I love the nerve. Mm -hmm. I love the in your face. I love the realness. Talk about the people you don't like. Talk about what happened last week that you don't like. If you don't do it, I'm gonna have to go back again. Cause I do repeat when there's no participation. Like I got a, a angry pussy bikini on. Like y'all better snap. Thank you. 
holding pattern, if you will. I had to move out of my brownstone um, a few months ago, so I'm in transition in terms of what the next step will be in terms of a brick and mortar space, but what I am doing is working on our first publication with um, Jonathan Gardenhire, a photographer, and I'm also, I've decided to kind of expand the Remen into an online store in which I'm able to, which I've invited um, curators from around the world to be able to curate a selection of works from different parts of the country and so well the first person I've invited is Aisha Diallo and she's a cultural producer primarily based in Berlin but works um, around the continent and she has a lot of um, work out of Dakar and so the first batch of artists that we'll be working with will be curated out of Dakar so I'm excited about that so that's kind of where I'm at right now. show some of your website or do you want to start some of the conversation? Well, I'm actually, before we move on to talk about Katinka Space, I do want to ask you about how, where your site was situated and formed the ways that you invoked your curatorial practice and now that you are 
in a space where you're in flux and you're moving on to a digital realm, what that means in terms of your thought process and how you're articulating who you invite into the space, the digital space, but also mm -hmm. your home space as well. Um, well, site's been, I think, a really important part of my practice. I've, um, you know, when I relocated, I used to live in London. So when I was in London, I, that was the first time that I started to work with artists really from more of a global perspective. So in London, most of the artists that we work with were primarily based on the continent. So that was like the first thought about what does it mean to kind of invite artists and individuals from Africa into London for the first time to have exhibitions and what are those conversations like? And then from there, Lagos, and she passed away recently, but she um, was a huge mentor in the sense of a lot of the way that she was working was this idea of like the, the local to the global. And so I've been thinking a lot about that in terms of my practice. So I'd say that um, the living room obviously is a site, it's a place. And so what is it like to kind of start converse, generate conversations in your living room? And then what does it look like when you're not in a living room? So, so I'm in flux. I've been thinking a lot about just trying to connect the dots the best way that I can in a digital space and then thinking about what other projects I might be able to kind of um, work on. And But yeah, lo location's really important and I'm based in New York, so I'd say I'm starting where I am, but I'm always looking outwards and trying to figure out ways to bridge those conversations between what's happening around the world, so. I think the idea of starting a publication practice as well, where you can have information circulating mm -hmm. and a different style of curation when you are spaceless is an important next step. And so I think it is a logical mm -hmm. thing to do. How is that differing from physically organizing work in a space for you? Yeah, I think that working on book projects, I've worked on quite a few. I think they always, they are different from actually curating in a physical space, but they're, they're, it's actually fun, they're fun projects for me because I think I'm able to kind of look at the work a little bit differently. You have to kind of make a, a really completely different edit. And also the context I think for the exhibition is not often there. So when I'm working on a monograph, I have to think about things almost a little bit differently. But publications have been really key part of what I would love to continue to push forward. I'm thinking about an independent press primarily because I think, one, I'd like to kind of continue to expand the conversations, this art canon that we're currently working in. So there's that, but then publications are really accessible. So I think uh, when if you come into a space and you can't buy the art, you can definitely buy the book. So there's that. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a question as well? Sure. I'm really curious about... Um, so you made a decision to open in your private space. And now as you're trying to transition, you're thinking about going into brick and mortar, assumingly a public space. Why the change? Is it because it feels like growth? Is it because it's too imposing on your personal life? What is it? Um, to be honest, I'm still toggling between the two. I'm not quite sure if I'm gonna go into a traditional brick and mortar, and I'm not sure if I'm gonna stay <laughs> in an apartment, per se. There were a lot of challenges, I'd say, with launching um, an actual gallery practice in your living room, primarily because um, I had a set of coincidences that worked out really well for me. I was friends with my landlords, so I could notify them when 100 people were gonna be traipsing up their stairs like every six weeks. That was so I had a relationship already, so we're talking about relationship building, but also there was no separation between both my private and professional practice. It was, everyone's in my living room, people are in my kitchen, people, I mean, and I love that, and I think like that, like 
that allows for a lot of the intimacy. I think so that's what made the space really successful. But I'm still not quite sure because I think um, one of the things that I found is people coming into a, a living room actually opened up a dialogue for building new collectors. So that was a really interesting thing. Having worked in a gallery, I understood how complicated it could be to kind of you know, gain collectors, and I'm sure you can speak to this a little bit more than I can, but I think in terms of building collectors out of your living room was a really interesting thing because you would come in and you would actually be able to visualize both where the artwork could go in your own personal space, but also I feel like I kind of broke down a barrier between the art world. I think a lot of the people that I was trying to reach who were coming in my doors were really concerned about, they go in gallery spaces all the time, but they don't feel like it's for them or it's not welcoming or they don't have an entry point. And I think a lot of what I was thinking about is an entry point. So I'm, I have all these things swimming in my head right now while I'm in the interim about what's the best thing moving forward. There is a thing for growth in terms of like to be able to do what I would really love to do. It needs to be on a larger scale, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be in a larger apartment that I don't live my in. My gallery is the size of your living room. Uh, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Do you want to show some of your gallery now so we can talk um, through your space so as well? So I think it's, it's sort of a perfect moment to start because I opened a gallery at this point. Um, so I had been, the best way to put it, running around the art world for several years. Initially started pretending to be a curator and then somehow you become one. Um, so from each project that I would do, I would get an invitation or two to do something else. And my practice grew and, and became a practice, essentially. Um, and after a very successful art fair presence at the end of 2013, I realized that I needed a space. And um, I didn't really want a space until I needed one. And the reason I needed one was because I was working with a group of artists who I loved. They were diverse, they were interesting to me, they were, they were really opening up windows into ideas that I, w I really wanted to engage with, and I, and I thought I was good at all the things that they, most of them were not. Um, I could sell very easily, I could, um, my eye worked in a curatorial way where I could set up work um, to communicate certain ideas. And so in January 2014, I opened, I started looking for a space, which I then opened May 2nd. So yesterday was our five-year anniversary. And the initial space, if you go into exhibitions, um, opened up and I would argue got better and better as time passed as I learned to be a dealer. I had never been a dealer before, so I think that's something that I lacked. I hadn't worked for a gallery. I had really just been inventing everything. Um, and I, for me, there was a real virtue to that because there were no boundaries or rules around things that I thought I could do or not. So I really, um, I really leapt just out of instinct and out of a lot of conversations with my artists. As the program grew, I tend to pass everything through this, th these artists. We travel around a lot together. They come to the fairs with me. We go on residencies together. Um, and so, as I was doing this, I remember at the very beginning I thought, it wasn't my intention to be a gallerist, and this will not just be a gallery, this will be more. Um, we will travel around, we will do residencies, we will do projects, I will continue my curatorial practice and not get 
slam down into the commercial side of it. The commercial side is the, is the gasoline for the car that makes sure that we can all continue our practices and our passions. And so after a year, we ended up in Zimbabwe. Um, that wasn't a random choice, although it wasn't super meditated. It came out of purely the interest in several Zimbabwean artists. In 2013, I encountered the work of Virginia Chihota. I was obsessed. In 2015, I found Gareth Miandoro. These were two artists, both from Zimbabwe, who blew me away, and I thought, okay, there's something there. And so I took my gallery assistant, as well as three of our artists, and we went to Zimbabwe. And there we coupled up with Zimbanete Arts and Culture Interactions, who was an art space that acted as mentor to many of the local artists. And actually, if you go into the CTG Collective, that's going to be easier, because this, this is what we did a few years later after really having um, been in Zimbabwe and worked with the communities there, worked with the dealers, with the curators, with the artists. Um, but this was a project that it began with us just going. And what I saw happening in this pulling out of the gallery space and going into a whole new community and coupling up, we lived and worked together for a month, um, is there was so much richness to the work. There were a lot of collaborations. We were also very lucky and encountered a community that literally just opened up its doors, both from an artistic point of view. We were welcomed like family. And, um, and so we were able to really dig deep into history, into culture, into practices, into spirit, into ancestry. And, um, and a lot came out of it. And a lot of those projects ended up in biennials. They ended up in museums. Um, and very quickly, the, the community in Zimbabwe became interested as well. And so we ended up being invited back a year later to curate a show at the National Gallery. Um, I started representing back in New York two of the Zimbabwean artists who we worked with, Admire Kamudzengerere and Terence Musakiwa. And so the ties kept building. Um, and we kept going back. So this has become an annual project. In 2017 is what... Um, you're looking at there, and you can go back whenever you want to projects as well. But we built a gallery in 2017. Uh, 2017 was this really big year. We went with um, four artists. We had three Zimbabwean artists with us. We had several curators working with us. And we built a space. It was co-designed by myself and Rachel Monosov. And we were very interested in building outside of Harare. There's some really wonderful galleries serving that community. We wanted to build outside of it. I was also very interested in what happened when you pulled us out of the noise and out of the, the, the looking at so much artwork. And so to get to CTG Harare, which is what we've coined the space, you have to drive 20 minutes outside of Harare and 10 minutes down a, a very wretched dirt road um, that sometimes you get stuck into, um, which makes its own adventure. But once you get there, you are surrounded by bush and by a few homes. This was selecting the site. And it's just you and the artwork that you're seeing there. And, um, and that was very interesting to me. How do we slow down? I think one thing, and probably in this room you're feeling it because you're in an art fair, but the art world, probably like the fashion world, like the music world, has become very fast. Uh, we're looking at 
literally thousands of pieces. We're looking at hundreds of artists. We're trying to run from space to face. Here is an opportunity to not do that. And it's also an opportunity to create a dialogue between artists from outside the continent with artists inside the continent to look at the space, the community, the culture, the artwork from both internal and external eyes and to couple them up. And initially that was the idea of the space. The idea of the space initially was that it was always going to be a conversation between an artist outside Zimbabwe and an artist living in Zimbabwe. Like most things, it evolved. Um, it didn't need to be so stringent. Um, it became the result of the projects that we would do, be doing there. And, um, and so when you go to the next year, if you go into exhibitions in 2018, we finished the building. So the building was built with all farm-made bricks using the whitest pit sand we could find from around the space. And so it could create this both friction as well as be really part of the earth. Um, and that was the, the second exhibition we did in this space. We had plastered it all. We were very proud of ourselves. We put on the roof, and we invited, um, this time with an open call, an international open call, and invited four artists who had never come to Zimbabwe before with us. They came. We brought a core crew as well, and everyone lived and worked together for a month and produced the work. So... Now, the space acts as the home of an annual residency, an annual exhibition. Um, there were grand schemes when we first opened it for it to have an ongoing program. Um, but given some limitations that you find on territory, and I think we'll talk a lot more about territory, but the rain season became a problem, the politics became a problem. Um, one of the, the magical elements of the project in Zimbabwe is that we went from a time when Mugabe was strong and ruling and we were dealing with fears around what would happen if we used the color pink because, there, because apparently there are no gay people in Zimbabwe according to Mugabe. So we went from that kind of situation into Mugabe falling, into there being a hope for democracy, into a military takeover essentially. Um, so we were able to see all of this but of course the politics also affects a space like this and currently, um, the space is actually acting as refuge because our partners were kicked off of their land and are now rebuilding around the gallery and rebuilding the, the center, both um, socially, artistically, and culturally. Um, and so that's, from an artistic point of view, very interesting as well, how an art space can, can transform and become something else. Um, in New York City, there's lots of performances I can show you. This all of this is on the website, but we do tons of performance and um, and sort of uh, artwork that has content. I think that as a space is very important to me. That it's not just a pretty painting, but it opens up a dialogue. In New York City, I've been here for five years, and um, I don't know how many people in the room are um, having constant conversations with dealers. It's beautiful and it's challenging. Um, the finances are incredibly challenging. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense if you want to support young artists. And, and so I think different, um, different groups of people will find different ways. And, and we found our own ways of financing that has kept us independent, that has brought in some corporate projects as well to support it. Um, but one thing that is happening is, and I think it's one of the most important things, how do you maintain an authentic program that is true to you? I'm a very um, 
dynamic, different person, I have lots of different interests. The artists themselves come from five continents. They, they work in all different sorts of medias. And so the biggest question that we constantly face is, how do you sell artwork that is priced under $10,000 and keep a space in New York City that is working at a high level and that is doing art fairs and that is running a residency and that is being invited to curate elsewhere and therefore you take time away from the space. So I think at the five-year mark, that is the major question. How do you treat year five to 10 so that you can continue growing because there is a need for growth. When I joke that my gallery space is the size of your living room, it is, it's 500 square feet. It's a very expensive 500 square feet in New York City. Um, but now that I've done second solos with the space, what is next? And that's the point I'm at as well. So I think what is next is a point that a lot of dealers and um, space creators and cultural creators are at in the art world. Jumping off of that point, I do want to ask or address access because you mentioned that as well. Had artists that you're working with or the people that you engaged at your space had a through line of wondering where they fit into the larger ecosystem of this art world of the New York very exclusive at times space. And so what I'm wondering is how present is that in your line of thinking? You've already addressed it a little bit, but I, for me, part of my curatorial practice is always with an eye to who is being left out of the conversation and who can be brought in through both programming but also the types of artists that you bring into a space. And so I'm wondering if you both could speak to how you're framing that and your ideas as well. It, it was at the very forefront of what I was thinking about when I decided to launch the space. A lot of the artists that I think I come in contact with um, did not did, did not go to Yale. They didn't go. They didn't go to Columbia. They didn't go to NYU. And a lot of them are self-taught. And so those individuals, sadly, are kind of left in the margins. When um, and that's not taking away from the beauty of programs like Yale. It's just kind of highlighting, I think, the disparity that happens between individuals that go to Ivy League programs and how they're wondering what's next for them. So that was very much a part of what I was thinking about. And it's also been, I think, primarily the majority of the artists I've been working with, I think, over the last 10 years have kind of been operating from a unique places, different backgrounds. And so I think that there's like, I wanted to be able to create conversations with everyone. I wanted to kind of figure out a way to get everyone in the room and then kind of like unmask some of the like, um, I guess like secrets of the art world and like what's going on. So I think I worked really hard to get individuals from across a spectrum of places into my living room. And there was people from Studio Museum, Brooklyn Museum, like I mean it was historians as well as writers. And we, I had a public program in which I had talks because I just really wanted people to be able to have a platform, so that's like emerging writers all the way up to people who are already kind of established because I think to have a mashup is where all the like kind of really good conversations happen, so. I never thought about it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I never thought about it, but that's not to say that um, the practice itself doesn't include it. I think the, the most important thing for me was always to have work that mattered, have work that was authentic to the artist, have work that spoke to the world. And by definition, that ends up being some of these outside voices because the inside voices, you know, 
there's some really amazing personal conversations um, that people can have, but this is not necessarily the time for the male privileged white artist. Um, that's not what we as a society are looking at right now. I think we're looking at what are the changes that we're making and, um, and how do we how do we bring in conversations that are interesting to us because they reflect those changes and that's what the world is changing towards. There's more access to women, there's more access to queer, there's more access to people of color. And so this is what we're fighting for right now is for our generation to become broader and better and more inclusive. And so I think the fact that there's been an exclusion of that automatically in a program that looks at the changes are happening right now in the world, they become included. Um, and, and doing so, I think, from a point of interest, from an assumption that we all want to, to talk about these things. Just to jump off of the idea of um, operating in the margins, I think, is something that we spoke about a little earlier. And um, I, I think uh, the organizers for putting together this panel featuring all women, and it's something that I think about as a curator, I think about who my mentors are, the institutions that I came up in, who was leading them, and um, I'm very curious about how you find work that necess is necessary for your projects to come to fruition, but there's also this other aspect of behind the scenes secret work that you have to do in order to not be undermined by your gender. And so I'm curious if that's come up in how you're navigating opening your own spaces and how you've kind of worked against that. Uh, for me, um, I've been fortunate enough that it hasn't really been a major part of my practice because when I worked at Tawani, we had um, female leadership. So there's that. Um, and then, yeah, launching my own space, I feel that that was the perfect opportunity to kind of like circumvent that. I didn't, I think being independent and autonomous is really important to me. I don't want it to be at a cost. I think, I think just when I'm thinking about uh, female individuals that I'm inspired by, I often see there's like fatigue, I think that happens in this industry. So I think I'm being, I was cognizant of all that, like kind of going down this journey, but um, yeah, so, um, fortunately, no, it hasn't been a major impact. I think being a woman is always um, in exchange for two sides. Um, I get propositioned all the time in exchange for what somebody might buy. And, um, and I think um, there's a lot of fighting happening right now in the world against that. And it's something, it's one of these changes I'm talking about that is very important. And at the same time, whatever I can do without that sale. Um, it just happens and it's the reality of being a woman, I think, in most industries, especially in an industry that has to do with sales. Um, I get talked to certain ways um, by older men, for sure. Um, it's sometimes disheartening and sometimes funny. Um, one thing that I think has been very positive is that um, if you can accept all those things as just part of the course, you can go about and do your business and there are 
more and more women every day in powerful positions. There are more and more women buyers. There are more and more of us who are essentially um, taking over, which I think we should because, well, a male-dominated world is what we've seen, so let's at least equalize. But if you look around you, um, it's the women that are sitting and listening to a panel. Um, this room is 90% women. And it doesn't mean that in that room where there's buying happening, there isn't an equal number or maybe a higher number of men. But I think that, I think that we're listening and we're, um, this sounds so banal, but we are change makers. The other part of your question that I find really interesting is how do we as women deal with the fact that we have to make children? And how do we as dealers, and I don't know if you've considered this yet, but I've recently gone married and I'm thinking about a family. How do I balance a family with a gallery? Because the gallery is my first baby and I'm going to have to have some sort of carnal baby that has to have some care. And um, men tend to be luckier where they're not attached to that other human being for that first year. And so there's a creativity that I think will come in for me for being a woman and a dealer where I'll have to figure out how do I do both because I don't want to just be a mother and I don't want to just be a dealer. I like both. And I now have enough examples of, of women who have, so I'm very confident that I can. But I think it's a very real situation. It's a very real thing that sometime in your I don't know what age, 20s to 40s, you might have a child and therefore, as somebody who also has a space, is going to have to deal with that. I think what I'll do is ask one final question before we open to the audience for participation and we're gonna pivot in a completely different direction than that as interesting as it is to consider uh, being a woman myself and what my future holds. But, um, I'm very curious in the idea of the digital landscape because that's something that you touched on before, Stephanie, and your website, Katinka, is like a really fabulous ex, ex, sorry, example of what... Made by a man. <laughs> but just what it means to operate in the digital space and how you're able to present work in that way and to, how are you thinking about what the future holds a space where more people have access, having this nebulous space online, a space where more people have access to it, how you're going about presenting yourself, presenting your work, presenting your artists in a digital landscape? I think that's a good question. I think, um, I think when I started the project, I didn't realize how heavily I was gonna rely on digital engagement. Um, it was, I was kind of newish to Instagram, and I was like, I don't, I don't even really know where to begin. So I'd say, um, from that angle, I think I've really come to understand that there's like two worlds happening. There's both the physicality of a space, but then there's the, the, you know, the online engagement. And I think the digital realm has a lot of power in the sense of, um, I think it's just quick access. So there's an idea of, I had a lot of people come to the space just because they were following my Instagram. So there, that was an interesting thing for me to see how the two play off of each other. But I think moving forward, as I'm thinking about the online boutique, I'm really trying to think about if I need to be able to have, I think, physical, I think, 
additions of what I'm presenting online because I think there are two sets of conversations. There are different conversations that are happening when you're physically in a space versus what's happening online. That doesn't take away from the engagement, but I've been thinking about expanding the prose, expanding the context, like figuring out ways in which I could kind of maybe show excerpts of books and maybe have writers kind of come in and kind of, so to try to pivot into more of an educational, I think, platform online which is probably what I'm thinking about. And I think that that would maybe serve my purpose just for being in a digital landscape, but I think in terms of the physical, I still think that there's a, there's a beauty to having that as well. I know that we're in an environment in which it's really hard to have a, a brick and mortar. It's extremely expensive. It's like I've been doing a lot of research and also, let's be honest, like um, just the art model itself, I feel like almost has to kind of be collapsed. So I've been thinking a lot about how do we rebuild this this model, like having a white box doesn't typically lend itself to being a successful platform because there are a lot of behind the scene factors to keep a door open. So I've been thinking a lot about that as well. So I think that the two could go hand in hand. And I think I'm also thinking about like, I think community sharing of resources. There must be a way in which there are spaces that would be open to working with smaller to mid tier galleries where I don't know, they're, yeah, just community, community sharing is what I'm thinking about as well, so. I think the internet is an angel that has made it possible for all of us to exist. Um, I say that, I think it, the internet democratized us and, and made it really possible um, for more people to enter this world. I think that, um, 154 is an example where so many galleries that are far away can reach collectors um, who don't live anywhere near their spaces. And as a space, I'm very dependent on all of my collectors and only a part of them are in New York City. Only about half of my collectors actually are in New York City, if half, which means that um, the digital has really helped me support my artists, support our programming, and support the gallery. Um, social media is really cool. I think it offers a way to create an identity where you're not dependent on uh, being accepted to a certain group or sort of signing in for a certain art cult, and there are many. Um, big galleries, the kind of mega galleries, as well as really the, the seniors, even the ones that are 20 years old, they, their practice didn't start in a world that was, I think, by the internet. And so we don't really know what our models are going to be. Um, I think we're the first generation, essentially, to build spaces and open spaces under this umbrella of being able to communicate digitally. Um, which has its, its good and bad, um, because I think we're not as used to picking up the phone, so our communications with an older generation are a little more strained sometimes because they don't look at their email as much. Um, I don't know if this will be true forever, but for right now, the brick and mortar to me still feels necessary. And it feels necessary because until our generation takes over, the bosses are still the generation before us um, and, and that brick and mortar, they're the ones selecting us for the fairs, they're the ones selecting artists for museums. And so um, 
that brick and mortar, I think, is important for an artist to be able to truly exercise that practice. That does not mean that a space like Medium Things or what it becomes, which is really exciting, cannot be collaborating with that brick and mortar, which I think is exactly what we're trying to get to, this community space that you're talking about, whether it's a, a group of such spaces getting together and sharing it, whether it's a bigger space opening up its doors. Um, I have said for a long time that the only way that we will be able to fight the good fight against the, the bigger powers is by getting together. Um, I think if we stay these niche little practices and little businesses, we will get eaten up just by simple power. You know, you have, if you have six bad months, you can't keep those doors open. Um, so I think that, you know, contributing and inviting collaboration is, is certainly maybe our language more and maybe that's where technology comes in because you can wrap around something a lot easier when you don't have to leave your bed. <laughs> Thank you. We're gonna open up to audience questions and we have a microphone. We're, this is being recorded, so if you could wait until the mic comes to you, that'd be helpful. You're looking at Ronsi's in the room, so if you wanna find her. Stephanie, I just wanted to um ask you uh, to speak a little bit more to um, that first image of, uh, I was really interested in how you were displaying the artwork with the texts that were sort of um, inspiring that piece. And um, as you were talking about the shift from brick and mortar space and the kind of the use of that table, I think it was that mm -hmm. image with the table. Do you know where it is? Yeah. Yeah, it's like towards the end. It's towards the end. This one. Yeah. I just, this is so inspiring to me and so beautiful the way you've done this. And I just, as you were talking about the move to digital space, I was thinking about something like, you know, the Black Lives syllabus that get, gets passed around and, and these types of resource sharing and this kind of insight that we get into kind of the text behind a movement, but the text behind an, an image like this is, is so inspiring. And so I just wanted to ask you to speak more to what inspired you to curate these pieces in this way and whether this kind of aesthetic, I mean, we're seeing Tanache and Nancy's book, this real uh, melding of images and text, and this feels like something, uh, a kind of a publication could come out of this that would, would be really um, beautiful. So I'd just love to hear more about that. Thanks for your question. Um, so I, I, would, I would say that, um, yes, I've been heavily influenced by books um, so I have a very vast collection, um, and so I pull from that. So I think when I was what I what I was thinking about when I was having a project space was what would visually look good, but also invite people to kind of feel as if I when I go in spaces I want to touch things, and that's you're not that's not allowed. And I felt like I wanted to have a room in which you could touch all the things, and so this and the way that it's displayed, um, I think speaks to like being in like a vitrine or something like that, but it also was, I was really keen on telling everyone to please 
touch, read, hang out, and people would just spend a lot of time in the space. And so I'm thinking a lot about what publications I would, would come from this. I've been working with, so Jonathan Gardenhire, the artist I mentioned, works very similarly, I think, to like Nancy and Tanache in terms of um, working very much with archives. And so he melds photography with archival practice. So um, yeah, so this is like it, and it's like physical form, which is um, really lovely. But yeah, I think that's a, a good idea to kind of think about what would come of something that looks like this. So thank you. Yeah. Are there any other questions? Okay, great. Coming to you with the mic. Awesome. Thank you. So having been to Stephanie's space, um, I can attest to, I think, the intimacy that having a space like that creates. So I wanted to ask, um, in curation, is there a way that you think, if you have a white box, how do you create the intimacy? How do you create that relationship between the person coming in the door as opposed to being in your living room? Which you get, how do you rep can you replicate that or is that? Um, honestly, I've been thinking a lot about that. I think that's why I'm still sitting in this space where I'm not sure of what's next because I really do love the intimacy of the conversations that happen in a space like like medium things, like what that was happening in my living room. But I think you can create it, but I think it really will come down to the conversations you're having with the artists. I think it's like true collaboration in terms of what their practice is. So it's like, it's starting, I think, with the artists and what artists are you interested in? What topics are they exploring? I think a lot of the artists that I work with, um, I was really interested in kind of tucking behind the scenes into like different themes and different topics. So. For example, this artist, um, her work is visually stunning, but there was a whole layer of like depression and mental illness that sat behind the work. So for me, I was really just interested in working with people who were extracting themes that we that are not necessarily commonplace, I think, in a gallery, and trying to figure out ways in which to make that conversation more accessible. But yet it is intimate, right? So we had a, a, a public talk with her and that was a really, um, I think it was a brilliant talk in that she was really candid. So I think that perhaps in a, a white box, I think always having a public context allows for a little bit more intimacy because you get a, a deeper insight into an artist, but I honestly can't say in terms of, I think there's ways you can design a space to make it or mimic some type of intimacy for sure, so. Um. I think it's as easy as being warm and polite. Um, there's definitely a, a rule in my gallery where everyone who walks in is greeted um, and asked if they have questions and, and um, were open their heads off about work. And um, we used to have these skater boys come to our openings and at first they were just coming for the beer and then, and then they would show up and be like, can you tell me about this one? So I think it, I think it's really an energy. I think um, in, in a living room, you, you walk in and you're already set in that mood. So I think in a, in a white box, per se, you have to create that mood. And that comes with how you treat people. Yeah. I, can I also add to that a little bit? I'm thinking about that all the time. I'm working at an institution that is at a scale that I can't even conceive of sometimes. Uh, the shed is a really large space and we're constantly thinking about how we can make sure the community that we're in 
not just Hudson Yards, but the surrounding area, especially Chelsea, um, the existing neighborhood before the galleries moved in, how people can feel welcomed into our space, but also in the galleries. And so one of the things that we have really considered is um, having, instead of just guards in our space, we have visitor experience people. So they interact with our audiences and make sure that if you have a question or even look like you're confused, they come up to you and try and talk to you, which is something that's helped us um, curatorially because a lot of the work that we have up right now is a little bit inaccessible on its face to the general public. And so it's something that we constantly have conversation about. And I don't know if the answer can be arised in like one conversation, but it is a continued ongoing thing. Like yes, public engagement is very important, but the way that you feel when you walk into a space or the knowledge that you even can walk into a space has to be there as well. The shed. Yeah, we just opened a couple of weeks ago. It's in Hudson Yards. Hi, um, thank you so much. Um, both of you had touched on sort of financial difficulties in uh, perhaps gaining capital or maintaining capital to fulfill that curatorial vision um, that you had um, and still continue to uh, fulfill. Um, I was wondering, as someone who is hopefully trying to start my own space um, in the future, how do you balance uh, the need for capital and for financial stability in creating spaces like this um, alongside uh, the integrity of your vision and, um, and honoring the artists that you're, that you're supporting? Well, for me, um, I, I guess had the luxury of maybe slowing it down. So just taking timeouts as needed to be able to regroup. So I wanted to be able to work in an accelerated pace in which I could have like an ongoing calendar of exhibitions that were every six to eight weeks. And because that's what I was used to. It was the pace I was used to. And I was very much worried about losing, I think, followers or losing the momentum or losing the energy. But then I realized that sometimes you do have to kind of take a step back to be able to kind of move forward. So I think um, I didn't have an extremely linear program. So the very first two shows I had, I would tell you they were about two or three months apart. Then I took another three month break and then I kind of revved up based on the, my financials and I was able to kind of consecutively have shows. So I would tell you to just kind of, you have to go on your own pace and to be okay with that and you're not competing with anyone and it's not gonna, and especially since the integrity of the work is really important and what you're trying to put out there. So I would say, yeah, just take your time. And then also I'm telling myself this, I'm telling this to you to be bold enough to kind of ask for money. That's not something that I've been able to do just yet, but I think like that's like the next step. If you open up a public space, you don't have time. I think it's the, the problem we have. Um, so when the first few years of um, my space, I was putting up a show every month because the artists are young. You want to show the artists who you want to show. And um, you do have monthly costs. And so you want to turn them around so that you can sell the next artist that will support the next month. A six-week show. I moved to six-week shows a year ago, a year and a bit ago, so at the beginning of 18. And they're much more successful press-wise, curatorial-wise. 
Um, but of course, they're, they're more stressful because they have to generate enough to keep the gallery going for essentially two months if there's six-week shows. Um, the best advice, honestly, is just alternate. Alternate an artist that you know you can sell well with an artist who probably won't sell anything. Um, but from your question between balancing integrity and not, um, integrity is the only thing that matters. So unless you can sustain a space in a way that feels like it's integral to you and authentic to you, there's no reason to have a space. Um, unless you want to have a super successful gallery um, that sells lots of saleable things, and that is a sustainable model. Um, so lots of the galleries that make tons of money sell terrible work. Um, lots of really amazing work doesn't sell. So um, if you can find the balance, those will be your great artists. If you can um, find independent funding, you'll be able to have a very obscure program that can exist and get into all these like very cool young art fairs and be awesome but never sells. It depends who you want to be. So if there are no more questions, I think we can wrap up this discussion. Uh, thank you so much for your attention, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to say a special thank you to our panelists. Um, really wonderful hearing about all the work that you're doing at DC. Thank you for also for chiming in about your work. And Katinka, all the work you're doing with our colleagues in Harare and also bumping into you sometimes unexpectedly uh, you know, at venues in Harare has always been wonderful. And we need to visit uh, the space. Stephanie, we've come to your space often, and it's really wonderful to have built projects with you. And I'm really excited to see what happens with the work. Thank you all for being an amazing audience. And we hope you join us later on. We have a screening. I see most of you have the program. A screening of Tisi Dangarimba's film. She's a phenomenal uh, filmmaker from Zimbabwe, also a novelist uh, like Yvonne Vera. Um, and we also have a broadsheet uh, sitting on the table to your left-hand side um, that gives some context to our programming and the life of Yvonne Vera, who our program is dedicated to. Thank you very much.